0: Uh, recording.
1: Well, guys, this is a uh, uh, Friday night, Sangha in the U.S. It is actually New Year's Eve, I just heard. We had a New Year's Eve party yesterday. Um tam brought up home a bottle of wine that was a very interesting thing to happen <laughs> 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 and uh to be honest with you i didn't like it very much really i did yeah. it, it yeah. um it was dry bitter and a little Uh-oh. bit salty And that reminded me of a joke that I had told to uh, Steve um, on Guru Viking, I think in an email that Mahasi is like a very fine wine. Mahasi Savadal's, you know, uh, Vipassana practice is like a very, very fine wine, old, dry, bitter and salty. And yet, uh, when Tam tried the wine, she thought it tasted great. And I said, okay, well, that means that Mahasi could be good for some people. (laughs) 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 So, anyway, uh, Happy New Year. Every year is a new year. Isn't that interesting? They all start off new. But the thing that's really kind of amazing is, is that the end of the old year and the beginning of the new year doesn't mean much. That in fact, the New Year's Day seems to be really, really artificial in the sense that almost all of the original old holidays had to do with um, uh, solar events, like the equinox or the solstice. Um, Easter, Christmas, all of those kind of things, but New Year's doesn't make sense. Can anybody tell me why New Year's is when it is in New Year's? Nobody knows. It had to do actually with the change of the Gregorian calendar when they recognized that the way that they used to keep track of the year was beginning to drift over the centuries. And so they had to readjust the calendar, and that's what made the beginning of the year, the beginning of the year, the way that it was. So it's quite artificial uh, time designation. So at this artificially manufactured holiday, happy holidays. If we're going to manufacture a holiday just out of the blue like they did with New Year's, we can make everybody every day a holiday.
2: (laughs) Dama Day. (laughs)
1: Yeah, every day is a holiday. (laughs) Every day is a holiday. So uh, with that note, may each one of you enjoy a holy, blessed day today, just like yesterday. So (laughs) today we were going to open the new year with a new um, kind of thoughts about an organization that means that we need to uh, actually find a way of organizing. As we have talked before, the Dhamma came to the West differently than the dhamma spread in asia <clears throat> in asia when the dhamma spread it spread with a small group of monks like to thailand they brought not just one monk who showed up but they brought the sangha with them and so um that went in the west when the dhamma came it came because of westerners being interested in the dhamma Rather than monks just happening to show up in the United States, and that that happened then and continued to happen since, let us say that Buddhism was kind of first introduced in the United States in the 1830s with Henry David Thoreau and Emerson. Later, uh, um, uh, Madame Blasky and Alcott and. Um, uh, That group with Krishnamurti were reintroducing it with the Theopathy Society in about 1880. That's also when the translation started to happen, that the British were already in India and Sri Lanka. And the scholars were interested in the old languages. And so that's how the Pali started getting translated into English, was by... uh western buddhists not buddhists they weren't buddhists at all they were just western scholars who were interested in translations and so they translated the pali into english without even understanding the subject matter that they were translating and they also didn't have very uh good ways of doing the translation because the language had been dead for many many centuries and nobody really understood it Uh, Directly, especially in India, it was only in Sri Lanka where they were collecting the literature that the locals knew anything about Buddhism, but for some reason they weren't consulted. And so uh, the, the beginning English translations had very, very big difficulties with the Dhamma itself, as well as they had no examples of what it was like for someone to be completely free. In the moment. And so uh, the West and Western Buddhism now is um, operating under the delusions of a broken Sangha with little or no Buddhas and certainly no Sangha. Now, what we mean by that, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is the triple gem, and that this is a very important quality of Buddhism that <clears throat> we have to have a community. We're practicing together that that was what the Buddha offered when he uh, started the bhikkhu sangha uh, back in the day. And that was a place for guys to come and hang out and practice the dhamma together rather than being around ordinary people who didn't care about the dhamma at all. They cared about money and women and dogs and cats and money and uh, politics and more money I, and that kind I of stuff. I just want to stop
2: you and say I feel personally attacked right now.
0: That
1: laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. the The calf of the right leg is on the uh, laying on the back of the dog right now. <laughs> so I've got a dog here too actually Bucky always comes when i'm talking to students on the dhamma she'll crawl under the chair and be right right under me so anyway back to the point is is that it is community that helps us that many many westerners their whole buddhism is book reading and then when they really get stuck in it then they go to reddit or to online groups to talk to other people who have read books and done some practice. <laughs> and so they, they don't know how to do Sangha. In fact, the place that uh, we would learn to do Sangha is from those who are already practicing Sangha, and that would be the Asian community who has come to the West. And so the way that Westerners should learn about Sangha is by learning it from those who understand it and know something about it. And that the Westerners who are teaching the Dhamma didn't stay in Asia long enough to find out what Sangha was all about. So Sangha doesn't come to us from Westerners. It comes to us from um, Asians who have been doing it in practicing. There's the exception to that is uh, Western Westerners who become monks and stay monks for many, many years like Semedo and uh, Achan Amaro and Achan Pisano and Achan um, uh, Tanisaro, Santicaro, those groups of guys who have stayed in Sangha. But for some reason, very few people in the West will go to the Western uh, temples that have Western monks in them. They would rather go pay a whole bunch of money to a retreat because the guy who's running the retreat is somehow famous. And so uh, doing retreats, by the way, when someone goes to do a retreat, almost always it's done in silence, which means there's really no opportunity to pound sangha in the retreats about the best you can do is one hour or two hours after the retreat is over before everybody packs up and goes home. And so the retreats don't foster Sangha the way that we should be looking at it. And so um, to get started, uh, Keyshawn has something that he wants to add to this before we continue on with it. Keyshawn, you have the floor.
3: Yeah, so thanks for laying out. You know, the idea, because I I was talking to Eric, and I mentioned that, you know, there's really not much of a Buddha, Dhamma, or Sangha with respect to, like, Western uh, Buddhism, uh, aside from perhaps what already exists maybe in the Watts amongst some nobles, um, that that's, you know, few and far in between, like you said, it's either Reddit or a book or something like that, and, uh, you know, but however... I find that, you know, we now are hearing the Noble Dhamma. We're receiving the Noble Dhamma. Um, Eric is spending, t- has spent some time at the Watt. And, uh, you know, in terms of being amongst the Sangha uh, and also, you know, we're talking to you, Domrado, who is very skilled at, you know, working with the, the Noble Dhamma. So having Eric here, someone else who also understands the noble Dhamma and who is also con- communicating with you domrado here uh I'm trying not to call you a Buddha but sorry um, <laughs> effectively I like to think we have here possibly the only Western triple gem tri- triple gem right here in this living room running right now and uh not just to give that lip service but just seeing the actual the actual progress or the actual uh development of the practice in this time here that we spent together i can kind of see the real value of that triple gem quite directly um so just one one example here one thing to bring up that i had had brought up uh you know with eric and with robert and actually in the in the uk Sangha chat um someone had posted a a a diagram that said. It's like this this flow chart that says, do you have a problem question mark? And it flows down on one side it says no, and then it says don't worry. And then on the left side it says "Uh, yes, and it says can you fix it? And then if it's a yes, then it says don't worry. And if it's a no, then it says don't worry. And then I had said I came to that and I said. I agree with that, but I would add one piece that we can go all the way back to the very top. And say, instead of a problem, let's change the attitude to: Do you have a toy, a new toy to play with here? You know, that we could change the attitude uh, to something wholesome to start. And uh, I kind of pointed out a quote that you that you recently said. Uh, In any case, any any toy that's played with too much will break eventually. And so, one thing about the sangha here that I wanted to point out, or that that recently happened to to show you guys, was that. Eric and I got got sick like dogs this last week and uh we we enjoyed the hell out of it uh, we we came we, what happened was actually is that I noticed <laughs> immediately that I was getting sick right and Eric's first words and I had heard I, I already had heard this before, but Eric vocalizes it and says, oh yeah, wonderful getting sick is uh, is a wonderful gift that's uh you know Bi a great opportunity to practice so he's saying it. I, and you know I'm saying it, we're going back and forth. We we're, we're we have this sort of sati going on that we're bouncing off of each other, pumping each other up to keep this going, keep this right attitude going about this whole thing that we started with, we don't even have a problem. We have a new toy to play with. And that allowed us to keep that fire going uh, to the point where we've played with this, this thing so much. I don't even feel sick anymore. I think I broke my toy. Um, and so... Uh, And and then Eric was just recently pointing out to me that what I was saying about that flow chart going back to the top of do you have a problem and changing it to uh, do you have a new toy to play with is actually synonymous with the first step on the noble path, knowing that no matter what happens, you can clean your mind out. And this is not held by ordinary people because they have problems, but we have toys. Mm-hmm. So that's all I wanted to to share about the Sangha and and, and the value of it. And gotcha. that, that this would have never happened. I don't, well, you know, let's say I was alone and I got sick. I mean, perhaps I would have thought, yeah, Vicky Buddha said that, but there might have not been that real spark and that back and forth and that constant going back and forth that, you know, that opportunity could have been missed uh, potentially. There could have been more moping involved. <laughs> really inspiring, Kishan. And Eric, it's awesome. Oh yeah, Alex, you can do it. <laughs> I know, I know I can. <laughs> you've done it. You've been doing it. And I've seen it. I've been
1: it. doing awesome. it.
3: And nobody's actually, gonna stop you.
1: you actually, this. part of um, the invitation would be then for guys who um, come and learn about the Dhamma. They can start their own sangha within their family. So that the wife and husband then can, uh, let us say, nickel each other into joy rather than to nickel each other into an argument. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that has a lot to do with appreciation. That we, It's easier, though, to appreciate someone that we have great respect for. And then, in fact, that's what the whole word Erehot originally meant and that that's the way that we should intentionally use it rather than piling on a lot of rules for it um, and saying oh you can't be an Erehot if you don't have this, that, and the other thing uh, the only really way to say it is you're not an Erehot because I don't respect you as one <laughs> <laughs> and that as I, if I respect you as one then that's the definition of Arahat. So you, the, the, the Dhamma dude becomes an Arahat simply because he is respected as one. Um, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was kind of careful about that one particular point. That in fact, it was quite famous. Some of the ways that he would dodge these arrows come. Um, <clears throat> Like, for instance, is, is Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa Enlightened. And by the way, the Thai people, because of the Thai traditions, as well as being around Buddhism for many, many centuries and probably getting the same kind of answer over many centuries, they stopped asking that kind of question. That in fact, each each individual one will decide for themselves, the people that they associate with, whether these people are associate worth being associated with or not. But uh, the Westerners, we we seem to be kind of stuck with, not knowing that we can make choices about the kind of people who we associate with. And so we begin to associate with people the way that we're used to associating with people, whether those people are really worthy of, of being associated with or not. But in uh, in Asia, that whole idea of finding a teacher who is worthy of me respecting uh, is a very deep and old tradition in Thailand. Uh, but when the Westerners come, they will ask, oh, are you enlightened? As you, if I will decide if I think you're worthy of um, being respected because of the way that you answer one question. Are you enlightened or not? Okay. And so Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's always question uh, would turn that around with another question, very Jewish of him, by the way. And the question would point out the issue of uh, anatta or no self, in the sense of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa would say, Who or what is it that can be enlightened? That enlightenment is kind of a Western concept. Another way of looking at it is, is that let's not use words like nouns. Let's use uh, verbs instead. Okay, like that was enlightening hmm. OK, I put my hand on the hot stove and my hand comes off burned very quickly and I will say, oh, that was enlightening. Now I know not to put my hand on the hot stove.
3: <laughs> or like when you can remember to not be selfish.
1: Ah, yes, that's what's enlightening. And so when we are in association with other people that make enlightening statements, then the whole group has an opportunity right in that very moment to lighten up. And that's what really enlightenment is all about. It's lightening up. So the the old masters who do understand the word uh, as it goes, it's okay that the Westerners have taken this Western word that has a whole lot to do with a war between the Christians, uh, Protestants, and the Catholics. And it had a whole lot to do with the revolution of the awakening of the scientific mind, including throwing off the oppression of the uh, royal families of uh, especially France. So in the age of enlightenment is the age of a a French revolution and a hundred years war. That's what enlightenment uh, is. And yet they take that word simply because it sounds good and apply it to what, uh, a member of the Sangha would have. Oh, he's enlightened, doesn't make any sense. Does that, what, is that, do, what kind of definition do we use for the word enlightenment? So one of the ways of looking at it is, is that, okay, let's take the word apart and look at the central ingredient of the word enlightenment is the word light. Well, that means that we've got something to work with. Now we can turn the lights on. We can see the light of day. We can um, understand through seeing things clearly. And this is what we mean by light, shine some light on it. Look at what's going on. And then the other aspect of enlightenment is to lighten up, to drop the burden. And so the two in combination is, is that when we can see what's going on, we can see that we're we're, uh, carrying a burden around. Like for instance, we're wearing a backpack and we we wear it so long often that we don't even know it, and we don't even recognize that it's hard to sit in a chair with a backpack and it's hard to move around with a backpack, but we're so used to carrying that backpack. Until someone comes along and says, hey, man, why don't you put that backpack down? It weighs like 30 kilos. Just sit it down. And so that's the first thing is to wake up to, oh, I don't have to carry this thing around all the time. Hmm. And so now I can take it off. And the second form of enlightenment is being a lightweight now that we've dropped that baggage. And so what we need now is good friends who know what backpacks look like, know how heavy they are, know what it's like to take it off and set it down. And so we invite each other to do that. Hey, man, you're wearing your backpack today. (laughs) Oh, that's right. Yeah, I can take this darn thing off. I don't need it right now. (laughs) Yep.
3: That sounds very familiar (laughs) with Eric here. Excellent. And in that well,
2: case, it's more like you're letting your friend know you can take that off instead of insulting him by saying, oh, you don't understand these teachings. You're not enlightened.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I see easily, you wearing a backpack. Kind of, you're no good. You've got a <laughs> terrible personality. Wow, you've got no morality at all because you're wearing a backpack. You know, that's very Western mentality. Hmm rather than being able to help each other. And so that whole point then that you're making, Brandon, is very important. And that is the issue that friendship is what really the Sangha is all about, which is exactly what the Buddha was um, uh, talking about, that friendship is all of the Buddha teachings. Now, you can say that it it depends upon the way that you use the, uh, the word friend But if you use the word friend in various ways and apply the word to the various ways, you can see that the Buddha's teaching is nothing but friendship. The friendship inside that you become friends with yourself on the inside. And when you're good at doing that, then you can be uh, then you can go to be friends with. Goodbye, Alex. Bye, guys. Good. Go enjoy the holiday. All
3: right. Goodbye, my good friends.
1: Go have a <laughs> bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah. No like, <laughs> a backpackless night. <laughs> Great. Okay. See you later. All right. So we were getting to the point of talking about the backpack and the friendship that we can have together, and that friendship is. Um, Let us say in every respect, we can be friends with ourselves. We can be friends with the house.
0: Uh Oh, Brandon, you still here? I'm still here. Yeah, I
2: think we lost him for a second.
1: That there are duties that we have. We we lost you for
2: for 30 seconds. We lost you at the moment you said house.
1: I can hear you and the recording is still going. Can you hear me now?
3: Yeah,
1: we can hear you. We lost you at house. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, we, we were talking about friendship. Yeah. And the various ways of friendship, both on the inside and the outside. So we become friends with other people. We become friends with the house that uh, uh, Bhikkhu also talks about the Dhamma uh, in the sense of the duty to the Dhamma. Now, in this regard, we're talking about the word Dhamma has various ways of definitions, uh, but all of them have to do with the reality or the way things really are. You could also say that it's like the thing that's the real thing. And in that regard, the Buddha-Dhamma is like uh, Buddha's real thing or the Buddha's thing. So that's the way that we look at the Dhamma. And the reality is, is that in order for us to stay alive, there are certain duties that we have to perform. In other words, there are a few needs that we have. One of the needs is to breathe. Luckily enough, there is a part of the mind that does that automatically for most people, but it doesn't do a very good job of it. Everything that's done automatically is not as as high quality as that which is done with direct consciousness and direct um, observation. And so um, breathing is one, eating food is another, but um, living among other people, has some duties or some requirements to it. That, in fact, one of the ways that, to look at right view, noble right view versus wrong view, is the idea of wrong view is is that I don't have any duties. I don't have any responsibilities at all, which means I can go around hurting people all I want to, that there's, there's no... Um, Uh, feedback, or there's no retribution, uh, and this causes disharmony when we think that there is no uh, duties to the Dhamma. That in fact, we all have duties to the Dhamma, we just don't know it. But as the Dhamma dude gets more steeped in the Buddha Dhamma, we recognize, oh, there is this responsibility that in fact. The second noble truth really points this out in a big way, in the sense of uh, the cause of suffering is not because this guy's yelling at me. The cause of suffering is because of my own greed, ill will, and ignorance about it. And so when I recognize that, now I can perform my duty to the Dhamma. By coming out of my greed, my ill will, and my ignorance. And helping that to happen, because when we are ignorant, it's really hard to wake up. But Can I say something got, about that, Otto? Pardon?
3: Did I say something about that real quick? Yes, Cause, go right ahead. Because Eric and I, I, I was talking about this exact topic with Eric. And so I think it's a good space to uh, introduce here. So, we were saying how the the duty to the Dhamma. And when I when I first heard that, I feel like it's easy to kind of uh, make a couple of associations and say, like, you know, you can almost say like duty and chore might be a similar word that you, you could start to use and, and, you know, could start to appear as a, a chore or something like that, a job that you don't want to do. And a lot of the time with uh, new practitioners, You know, taking a long deep breath could become tiring or it's a chore, or you know, this duty that we have to the or that we're applying to ourselves to the Dhamma uh, is maybe like a a duty. But as we uh, develop some skill, and you were just getting into Paticca Samuppada of how seeing how I'm causing my own suffering, and that this duty to the Dhamma is something that I want to do with great gusto, that something I want to do with great enthusiasm. Uh, you used an analogy a while back you, know, you used to use about taking out the trash that you could have mm-hmm. one attitude about it. this is your chore, this is your duty. And but the sun might come down one day and say, "Wow, this stuff really stinks and take it out with great enthusiasm and toss it <laughs> out. And so now mm-hmm. the duty to the Dhamma is like you know something that you wake up excited about, you know to, to do your duty to the Dhamma. Excited to take out the trash as opposed to resenting it or having resistance and things like that.
1: Uh huh. Actually, the word duty, I think, in um, at least in the US, in uh, modern times, the definition of the word duty has changed in exactly the way that you're mentioning it. That in the 1940s, um, we had patriotic duty which people were enthusiastic, that we were at one time enthusiastic to find out what our duty was and then perform our duty because not performing our duty is of great suffering. That in fact, that's, the, that's another way of describing what the Dhamma is, <clears throat> or the, the teaching of the Buddha, is, is that uh, the easiest way to have a happy life is by just performing our duties. And that when we don't perform our duties, then we're going to have an unhappy life. And we think then that in Western culture, all my duty is I've got to go to work. No, that's not a duty. That's a mistaken kind of duty, like patriotic duty is not really a duty. What kind of duties then do we have? Well, the duty to breathe. The duty to wake up and look at where we're going. The, the duty that we have is, um, let us say, to stop adding our crap to the world. Or another way of saying that is, is that our duty then becomes, becomes to be friendly with the world. That becomes kind of a duty, all right? So if we are around other people who understand those duties in a happy, joyful way, then that's Sangha. And when we're associating with people who do not understand their duties, that's ordinary culture that is subject to uh, the Four Noble Truths. And so this whole concept then of That we are not an island unto ourselves. That we are all interconnected with one another. And that if I'm not doing my duty, that affects other people, especially those who um, will see that and misunderstand that what I'm doing uh, that is not really duty. They'll think that it is duty. For instance, the little boy is walking down the street, uh, with his dad, uh, and his dad, uh, sees a cop across the street and he gets angry. The little boy will think "Oh, my duty is to operate. Like my dad is, is to be angry at the same things that he's angry at well. Actually, in another way of looking at it, the dad then, at that point in time, has a duty to the son to not teach him to be angry at inappropriate times. And so the dad is not being uh, sangha with his child right then because he's more interested in how he feels rather than how he affects others. All right, so that's another important point about what friendship is, is friendship is is that we see how we affect other people. And when we do that, then we can perform our duty correctly with them. And when we recognize that anything that we get ticked off about with someone else is probably a trait that we have the psychologists know this and call it projection an example of that would be the people who hate fat people the most are people who have trouble with their own fat fat people don't like other fat people because when the fat guy sees the other fat guy coming his fatness reminds the this guy of his own fatness. And so two fat people come together and they immediately don't like each other because each one of them is projecting onto the other what he is feeling. That's just one of many, many examples. Perhaps you you, you guys don't have that issue, but <clears throat> those who do have fat issues know that we don't like to be fat even though it's just part of the genes that could you, there could are... you also
3: say that uh, that what you're describing about something that we get mad about is something that is one of our traits you said or one of our patterns could you say mm-hmm. that that's one of our buttons is that another word you would use yes that's one of your buttons
1: yeah yes the things that we don't like inside of ourselves we project onto others that that person is a bad person because I don't like that trait, because I have it within. And
2: because I can't deal with it within, right? It causes a lot of problems for me within. So Mm -hmm. it creates that bad attitude toward it, and then you project that everywhere,
1: wherever you see it. So an an example of that, then, is that people who lie don't like to be lied to. And so not lying becomes a social, uh, social issue, and that lying is, uh, is a social pas, or at least at one time it was. Now it seems that people are getting more and more okay with it lying because they recognize that their politicians are lying to them. And for some reason it's okay that politicians lie, and because it's okay with politicians lie, then I can lie too. But the old original position is, is that we don't like it when we're lied to. But if you can get over your own lying, you can see that because I am now free of the, of the lying, at least relatively so, and I recognize that it was a trait that I had and that I'm careful now not to tell direct lies, then it is um, actually a skill of catching our own lies, we can begin to catch other people lying. But if we do that with the the attitude of the beginner of, Oh, now I don't like lies, but I can see lies. I go around and now I'm opening up. You see in originally the idea is, is that we really don't want to see other people lying because that makes us feel bad because we're too are liars. But when you have no more lies, then you know the 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 work that you had to go through to see those lies stopped them before they came out. And we can recognize that other people are are lying because they just don't have one little thing that I have had to to develop. which means now we can have compassion for people who were lying rather than hate them. Because we hate the lies inside. In other words, when we become friendly on the inside, then we can become friendly on the outside with other people, even though they're lying to us. But the difference is, is that in the, uh, in the original thing, we're, we bring doubt, oh, maybe they're not lying. Maybe what they're saying is correct, and so I'll go ahead and believe that lie myself. That's the way that they wouldn't expect you to do to treat your lies. But instead, what they get when they're lying is a big belly laugh. Oh, I I get what you're saying. I know what you're doing here. And they begin to recognize then that they don't have to be stuck in their lies, that they can come out and be joyful instead. Okay, that's the point about it in Sangha, is, is that when you recognize something within yourself, that you don't like that means that it's your job to take care of that in within so that you do come back to a whole position and then you can help others with theirs rather than the way that society operates In other words, someone who has been on a diet many years over their lifetime, they begin to understand how difficult dieting is, and so they give other people who are fat a break. But if you're actually fat and trying to lose weight and can't do it, that's when you hate the fat, and so you want to uh, hate other people who are showing their fatness because that reminds you of your own fatness, right? Same thing with lying. Same thing with alcohol use. Same thing with smoking. In fact, the ones who hate smokers the most are newly ex-smokers. People who have never smoked, they don't have so much about it, but... um, we could, But when somebody's got smoking on the mind, they don't like it because they're trying to get over it. So you can see that that happened in almost every case. This is projection. Lying, we project about that. Be, being fat, alcohol use, tobacco. What other things are there? That's something that we can invite to look open to is is that we reject other people for the faults they have when in fact the faults that they have that we don't like are the faults that we already have within. If we are in a group of people who understand that, then they can mutually work together as a sangha for everyone to come out of those projections and to come out of their stuff. So this is part of the value that you were talking about, uh, um, Keyshawn is that, yeah, you're sick and, and your, your friend is sick and you don't like him being sick because you don't like being sick. But when it's okay for you to be sick, then it's okay for your friend to be sick. Mm -hmm. This is basically socialization or socialism. And that it is an instinct within. It's the nesting instinct. We go along to get along. There's many, many aspects of this nesting instinct that is detrimental. Following the rules, going along to get along, um, putting up with things that are hard to be put up with, and that sort of thing comes from that position but when we begin to change we recognize that everybody has these problems if i can learn to become friends with myself on the inside then i can become friends with people on the outside now can I ask a question go ahead
3: further uh, so what would be the application because i've gone through it with the sickness what would be the application let's say if instead of me and eric were sick we were fat um would we first start with becoming uh really glad that we're fat that we get to take on this fat loss journey or whatever and then would we then like be okay with be be start becoming happy or glad with being hungry or being glad with being tired after a run or something like that is that how you would start to work with it
1: yes We look for a little bit of success, a little bit of satisfaction, all right? And so the first thing that they could do, uh, let us say that they were two roommates together that had just moved in uh, uh, as dorm partners in university dorm or something like that, and that they're both fat. One of the things that they could do instead of disliking each other and ignoring each other They could make a pack with each other, all right? Let's both go on a diet together. That's the first step, is that knowledge, that waking up, I'm fat and I don't like it, and you're fat and you don't like it. Let's work together as a sangha (laughs) to do something about it. Yeah. so that's the first thing. The first turnaround is the decision. Let's go on a diet together. Well, one of that Sangha, right there, because in fact, the the point the, the example is a diet, that can be done with everything. Lying is another one. The two of you can make a pack that you're going to be catching and watching not only your own lives, but each other's lives, so that when one catches the other in a lie, we can have a great big celebration. Aha, I see that. Okay. <laughs> so uh,
3: the way you're describing it is like tackling uh, taking on one specialized item after another. Whereas I was thinking more about it like we're we've both made a pact <laughs> about dissatisfaction and the end of dissatisfaction in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe am I am I mixing up something here between like the the, the specialization and the generalization? Like, which is it?
1: Well, it depends upon the waking up and seeing what there is to see. If you're uh, if you're wise enough and awake enough to see that just general dissatisfaction is something to be. Uh, mutually agreed upon as a pact that we're going to come out of our mutual dissatisfaction with each other and within. Again, that's that Sangha. It has to do with relationship. Now, you don't find that in Western culture. You don't find a mutual uh, admiration society that that's in fact what you could think of uh, that Sangha is for the beginner. And, and, uh, later it becomes a way of life, but you can call it for the beginner, a mutual admiration society that we admire each other or that we respect each other or regard each other very well. We treat each other as if they were an arahant worthy of respect, worthy of honor, worthy of gifts. And if we treat other people the way that they are worthy of respect, worthy of honor, and worthy of gifts, then they will see you the same way. And so it doesn't have anything to do with attainments. The way that Westerners, they think that that uh, that Buddhism uh, and getting one's act together or getting one's mind straightened out, is all a one hundred percent internal operation. to where no, it's actually uh, useful to have friends around who can help us happily to see what we've got. And if the two of you are ready to work mutually on uh, dissatisfaction together, then any time one of you is not satisfied and the other one can see that he's not satisfied in a moment, you could perk him up, tease him, poke him, do something to um, bring him back uh, into a state of satisfaction. This is what Sangha is really all about. Ordinary life is about he's unhappy about that, and he wants me to be unhappy about that, Therefore, I will go along to get along, and I will be unhappy about that also. In that regard, birds of a feather flock together. Those who are uh, really gung-ho on global warming, they know other people who are gung-ho on global warming those who were gung-ho on this or that uh, politician will find other people who were gung-ho about that politician. And they associate with them. For some reason, that doesn't happen very well with Buddhism. Because in Buddhism, everybody says, I'm gung-ho on Buddhism, let me buy another book. (laughs) I'm gung-ho for Buddhism, let me go uh, to a retreat and really practice hard. To where the real attitude is, I'm really gung-ho on the teachings of the Buddha. Let me go find people who were gung-ho on the teachings of the Buddha. That's what the Sangha is all about. So this whole point that we're beginning to make is kind of an introduction into the value of, of Sangha. That without Sangha, it's very difficult to get anywhere on your own unless you're in complete seclusion. Seclusion is the only option, and in fact this is something that is practiced uh, intentionally, is to get away from other people so that we can get away from their delusions also and come to deal only with our own internal delusions for a little while until we can really see them. But if we are in a sangha, who are people who are doing that automatically, then seclusion is not so necessary that, in fact, it's quite possible for one to gain all of the, let's say, admirable qualities that one would expect from a, uh, uh, let us say, a long-term meditation practitioner. And these guys haven't practiced at all. I I would say it would be like this, uh, tell this kind of story. A young man, because he's raised in Thailand and lives in Thailand and lives in a Buddhist culture, and his family is in a Buddhist culture, and it's the expectations that he become a monk, his mother puts him into it. In fact, the women are the ones who are often pushing their sons into uh, the Sangha, Partly because they know that if he spends a couple of years in the Sangha or longer, that the Sangha itself will rub off on him and he will be a better person when he um, is a member of the Sangha. And so the meditation practice may be of value for him.
4: Hello? <clears throat> hey, how's it going, guys? Hey. How's it
1: going? What What's your name again? I uh, Connor, is that it?
4: Pretty close, Corey.
1: Corey, Corey. Okay, hi, Corey.
4: How's it going? Yeah, I just thought I'd come chat. I didn't really have anything else planned for the rest of tonight. All Still right.
1: We're, we're uh, We've been in. It for nearly an hour now and been uh, discussing Sangha. uh, And we were talking about uh, in the West, everyone thinks that the meditation practice is their practice. They practice once a day for an hour. They'll go to a retreat, they'll read Dhamma books. But it's also possible that a young man can come and join the sangha and spend several years without ever doing any meditation practice but he is in the robes and he has expectations from his family about how he's to behave as well as he's got examples in the sangha who are helping him to behave and so without any practice of meditation at all, other than the practice of the sila or the paddy monk or the responsibilities of of the monk, practicing that way, as well as being around uh, members of the sangha, it rubs off so that one can learn to live uh, in the sangha and be a great member of the sangha and be highly respected by the sangha and to never spend one day in the practice of meditation. Okay. So if that's the case, then the Sangha and the community that one lives in is more important than a practice of meditation, because there's also the possibility that some westerner can be gung ho about the Dhamma practice meditation, uh, daily year after year after year, and still gets angry and writes on Reddit. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, when we understand that the practice of Anapanasati is something that we can practice because the guys around us are practicing it and we don't have to think of it as a formal meditation practice. It's just to wake up to recognize you don't criticize other people. Yeah. That's an important part within the, uh, the the Sangha is that we don't criticize others. That's That was actually drilled into me intentionally by a whole group because I had um, actually criticized another monk, um, not in public, but just in conversation with a couple of other people, and it got all over because that's yeah. an important point. And yet, uh, criticizing others is a constant thing that we do in the West, that we criticize each other on a regular basis because we were criticized on a regular basis when we were a child. Yeah. And yet People we don't like have a
4: constructive criticism. Yeah. There's that constructive criticism, you know, so everybody thinks it's okay to do and they always try to do it passively or do it nicely, but it still takes a toll. It still creates mind loops and mind issues that ultimately have to be worked out eventually.
1: Right. Well, these two people that are criticizing one another, they have the point that they are not in sangha or in agreement with each other that it's okay for you to point out happily the things that need to be looked at, which is different than criticizing me for doing it that we become critical of each other because we're critical of our own selves. If we can learn to be not critical of other people, we begin also to learn to not be critical with our within. So this is another example of Sangha with this concept of birds who, uh, uh, birds of a feather flock together, that uh, people who have like minds associate with people with like minds and that Westerners who are interested in the Sangha or interested in the Dhamma, they inherently know that it would be better to associate with people who are also in the Sangha, but we don't know where that Sangha is. Where is that Sangha? That's what we're doing here is we're beginning to develop it. I want, uh, that's one of the things that you can see that Western teachers of the Dhamma, they don't really care whether the students know each other or not. Because Western meditation teachers, they grew up in their Dhamma practice without having a Sangha. And so they don't see the value of it. But if someone who has been a monk for many years or been in the Sangha long enough to see what it really is going on there, then he really does want the students that he has in the Dhamma to actually give and teach the Dhamma to each other. That why should the teacher be the star of the show? that in fact, a real teacher would be very, very happy in the middle of his crowd of students rather than out there leading them someplace. Mm-hmm. And so getting a sangha going is going to be mutually uh, beneficial, just like uh, I promoted Eric and uh, Keishon to get together out in the woods. And now... They um, have a little private sangha going, and I would suggest that uh, this can be part of the core, that we can get things started, to reach out. Did I, um, there's actually the Discord group that we have, and that I would highly recommend that we spend time nurturing and encouraging people on that, as well as the sharing that we can do uh, on Skype. So we have both the Skype and the Discord where we can, uh, with the right understanding, go to these places so that we can develop Sangha. Now, the idea, if we can start it just about now, we can talk about that we can do more formalization, that uh, the idea is to have a foundation that is... Um, Already with a group of people who were in Sangha together to work to promote the idea of Sangha within Western Buddhism. Right now, Western Buddhism is splintered. It's broken. It's in various factions. That the Tibetans are in this corner, and the Theravadas are in that corner, and the Zen are over there in that corner, and even in that corner, there are squabbles going on.
2: Yeah, it's like the the Western Buddhist uh, insight UFC is kind of how it appears when I see different (laughs) people online. It's like everybody's at each (laughs) other's throats half the time. (laughs) yeah this guy's this or not that or you know and oh yeah it's Uh,
1: um
2: it's sad to see
1: have you guys ever seen the kennel ration commercial for dog food way back in the 70s i think anyway there was a little jingle my dog's better than your dog because he eats kennel rations all right. This is basically the game that is played in Western Buddhism is my dharma is better than your dharma. You don't even use the right word. We've got an R and you don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's true.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and so there's this um, very Western mentality of us versus them to where the real sangha is us and more us, there's no them to it. That that Mm -hmm. whole idea of us and them is actually instinctual. It's the territorial instinct that this is our territory. And if we can break down the territorial instinct, then that means we break down the territorial boundaries, which means that everything is part of our territory. That our territory is everywhere. That in fact we don't. Uh, if you think about it, it is the, the the Zen in this corner, and the Vajrayana in that corner, and the Mahasi in this corner, and the Buddha Dasa in that corner, and and that kind of thing. They're still in the same boxing ring. Yeah. And that's what they do in that boxing ring is they box with each other over my Dhamma is better than your Dhamma. The Buddha actually uh, referred to this is, uh, in this way of saying is, is that my opinion is correct and right, and all other opinions are wrong. The Sangha position is my position is right but needs help, and everybody else's position is also right but could use a little help. So let's help each other so that everything is okay and hunky-dory rather than competitive. And the competition is very strong to the point that we make it a a business model. That in fact, Western Buddhism is more attuned to the Western business model than it is to actually sangha or sharing. Uh, the original teaching of the Buddha promotes generosity, which means having a generous spirit with other people and that may or may not have anything to do with money. It has to do with generosity of spirit or generosity with joy, generosity with gladness and also generosity and gratitude work hand in hand together. That if things are working correctly and functioning properly within a sangha, then the gratitude is always the response to generosity. And so generosity and gratitude are together, and the two people make each other feel good because of that kind of sharing. Uh, But when we have the idea of uh, I know the Dhamma or the Dhamma is mine, then that selfishness is what we find in regular society, and so coming out of that selfishness by just being a part of something that's bigger than ourselves is one of the ways of coming out of that selfishness. And so, yes, but, West, go ahead.
3: So, I'm just trying to reconcile in my head, I guess, a story that that you've told before about Bikkhu Buddhadasa. Or maybe Batsu or in general that the attitude was if someone came seeking answers about rebirth or uh, magical teachings, that they would be directed down the road.
1: Yes, in a joking kind of way. <laughs> okay. With mm. the idea that they're not going to go down the road, they're going to stay here and get some real dhamma, as opposed to getting a plate full of magic that they were looking for. But there's always that, that invitation that if if someone wants to come in and then um, add something that is um, unnecessary or un, un, unuseful, then uh, that's a good point to uh, to make <laughs> or to point out that beliefs in things that happened deep in the past really don't have much effect about what's happening right now. The things that happened on a particular day 10 years ago, you don't remember any of that stuff. It's gone, it's dead, it's in the past. So let's let all of the past be dead, no matter how far back the past goes. The original teaching of the uh, the the concept of karma was not really about having to deal with old past dead comma, nor was it having to do with the future. I'd better behave myself because in the future, I'll have to deal with what I did now. This is normally the way that it's taught. This is how it's taught to children in uh, the idea of the precepts, that if you kill somebody, that you're going to get killed in the next life. What are you going to get killed in this life? You're going to get killed many times. (laughs) That in fact, you don't have to go around killing people to be killed. And so that idea of the, uh, um, we get an overly detailed view of a tit for tat. Like a, um, one kid slaps one uh, his friend, the kid next to him, and that kid slaps him back, just one, you know, tit-for-tat back and forth, and we see the law of karma like that. Rather than seeing it as, you know, what we really need is to see it is that we have a duty to the Dhamma, we have a duty to reality, that we don't have duty to some karma machine or to some god in the sky who is doing the job of a comma machine, that really our duty is to the environment or to the life that we're living, the entire Dhamma, the entire um, way that we live, all of the people that we're involved with and everything like this. I'm uh, reluctant to use the word world. Because often we use the word world as a conceptualization of things that are way out there, far away. And so I'd like to give you the concept from the Dhamma perspective or from the Sangha perspective that your world is only that which you have some sort of contact with. Okay, an example of that is Biden or Trump or any particular politician is not in my world. That Barack Obama is nothing but a concept in my mind with some pictures and photos and things like that to go with it. But he's not part of my world. I don't have uh, uh, Roger Stone, for instance, sitting here on my porch. There's no possible sangha there. And so let's look at the world as the world that we actually are involved with and have some communication with, and that uh, the world way out there is not a real world, it's a conceptualized world. An example of that is when we think of, of Dallas, Texas, when we think of Dallas, some of us have driven on the freeways in Dallas. And so we see Dallas as a set of freeways. Other people will see Dallas as just a, uh, a place on some map that we have in our mind. Other people who have been to, uh, let us say, a particular Watt in Dallas, then when they think of Dallas, they think of the Watt that they've been to. The fact is, is that no one can think of Dallas and incorporate Dallas. Dallas is way too big. There's way too much to it to even bother to care. But what we can care about is that part of the Dallas that we have some communication with. And if it's only just an an object on a, uh, a map, then that's all it is. That's all Dallas really is to us. There's nothing else to it. So this concept of living in a world that we are around and in means that this is the world that we can be friendly with. This is the world that can be our sangha, that we're only communicating with those that we can communicate with because they're in our reality. So we need then to expand that kind of a world so that the people in Western Buddhism can understand that there is more to Buddhism than sitting and squatting on the floor for long periods of time and reading Dhamma books, that really the uh, the real Dhamma is about friendship. And so someone can spend 20 years in the Wat, in the Sangha, uh, with the Mulk. And being a good monk, and that's all he's got on his mind, is to just to be a good monk, not interested in enlightenment, not interested in becoming a noble, not interested in jhana, not interested in becoming a stream enterer, just interested in maintaining his lifestyle within the sangha, that kind of individual will become someone who is greatly worthy of respect because he's living the Dhamma rather than practicing the Dhamma, and he did it in a, um, let us say, a natural kind of way. That if you live around high-quality people, that high quality will rub off on you, just like if you associate and hang around low-quality people, that low quality is going to rub off on you. An example, if you've got three or four friends and one of them is the bully in town or the bully in the high school, then because uh, he is that bully, bullies always want to have companions around them to support their bulliness. So if you hang around with a bully, you're going to begin to have a bully mentality. And the bully wants other bully people to be around him so that they can work together like that. So that's a that's a, is not sangha but is is uh, association. I I generally like the term guilt by association. You become guilty of the things that 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 are with the people you associate with. So if we can promote an organization where sangha is the foundation, then we can uh, begin to bring people together that are diverse from these various places. That's the beginning of the Sangha. And so we can see it, that, uh, there's various aspects of it. One is the aspect of, well, what about the Dhamma teachers that are already out there? There are literally dozens, if not hundreds of people who are advertising themselves as Dhamma teachers. Um, You can see them on the internet and that each one of them seems to be a solo individual. But in fact, um, Steve uh, James mentioned that he was very surprised that Dan Ingram and I can get along together very well, especially in the sense that it looks like that we're from a diverse background, to where in fact, no, Very similar background, but there's no reason to have a conflict because of different backgrounds. The question is, is, can you be friendly with each other? Did you get in your background of Dhamma, all the practice that you had, did you learn to be friendly with other people who were in the Dhamma, or did you stay in your old ways of thinking, now I'm a big Dhamma teacher and I'm better than everybody else? rather than recognizing, oh, no, we've got a group here. And so one of the things that we need to do in, the, uh, in a foundation way or in an organizational way is to promote bringing these diverse teachers into a community among themselves so that they don't, um, let us say, compete with each other. So that if um, uh, one teacher is in, let us say, Denver, and he has another teacher that he knows of in Dallas and a new student comes to him on the Internet that lives in Dallas, he's unlikely to tell that uh, student about the other teacher in Dallas because he thinks this student is my student rather than just another friend. That in fact, that's one thing about friends is that if you've got a friend and then you have another friend, then it's to your benefit if those two friends will become friends together. Now you've got three friends together. And if a fourth friend comes, you don't want to keep these other two friends away from him. No, you want to share with them also. This is the quality of friendship is the quality of sharing. And so we need to promote it so that the Dhamma teachers can share with one another and become a Sangha rather than becoming a teacher because they paid $7,000 to some famous meditation teacher, uh, spent two years spending $7,000. And all they've got out of it is a certificate, a certificate. I am a Dhamma teacher. I paid $7,000 for a Dhamma teacher's certificate, and I've got a certificate. I am a Dhamma teacher. Okay? That's the way that we tend to think of it, rather than a real Dhamma teacher. is just a member of the Sangha. How could he possibly not be a teacher if he's in Sangha? And so he treats everybody as sangha. And so we, we treat everybody in that happy, wholesome way. So this is the first one is is that the teacher
3: Certificate in lighter pockets. Pardon? I said certificate in lighter pockets.
1: <laughs> A certificate in lighter pocket. I don't understand that.
3: They spent
2: their money, for they spent $7,000 on on the certificate, so they've got lighter pockets.
1: (laughs) Oh, I see what you're talking about. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) All right. So that's one of the points is, is that the teachers that are already out there teaching, we can promote Sangha within that group. The next one is the wannabe teachers, those who have been Western Buddhism and done enough reading and done enough retreats and done enough meditation that they become so uh, enthusiastic about the Dhamma, they want to devote their life to it. Now that enthusiasm and wanting to devote one's life to it that is, in fact, one of the better definitions of the word sotapanna. Someone who is willing now to jump out of the lifestyle that they have had and jump into the lifestyle of Dhamma all the time, hoping that by doing that, that they'll be within Sangha. But they wind up not being in Sangha. They just want to be in the Dhamma all the time. And so the general mentality that you find in the West, and this has happened time after time after time, and that is... I wanna be a Dhamma teacher. I don't know how to be a Dhamma teacher unless I've got a place to do the Dhamma teaching. Therefore, the first thing we got to do is to buy land or buy a building so that we can turn this building into a Sangha. Well, the building is not going to be a Sangha. It's the community of people who are the Sangha, not the building. But building a meditation retreat center seems to be the way that the Dhamma teachers want to teach the Dhammas by having their own retreat center. Well, guess what? When he had that idea, the Dhamma teacher, the budding Dhamma teacher, now says, what I've got to do is I've got to become a landowner, a property owner, a construction engineer, a business manager. And now when we get the retreat center built, now I have to be a center manager. And where is the Dhamma teacher within all of this? That's the big problem is, is that the way that it's been set up in the West, we wind up with places like Spirit Rock and IMS and um, many other retreat centers that got started, because people were really dedicated and into the Dhamma, but they got sidetracked into constructing something that they thought that they needed in order to build the Sangha to where in fact, we don't need any buildings at all. What we need is just a place to communicate together. Uh, now the thing of it is, is and and Eric can point this out cause he's already seen that, that in the United States and in Europe, Less so in Europe, but the the, because of the Vietnam War and the refugees, there are now literally about 400 Watts or temples in the United States, and that these temples have monks that were chosen intentionally because they were old, established, good monks and were brought to the United States by the Asian community. So we now have another member. In this ring that we were talking about, beside the Vajrayana and the uh, uh, the Western Buddhist uh, with the um, the Zen and the Theravada and the Mahasi and all of that, we now have a new member of on the block. But this member is all of the Lao, Cambodian, Vietnamese, and Theravada uh, mm-hmm. or Thai Buddhist temples. In the United States, and as a monk, we were invited to them all. That, in fact, I have spent quite a lot of time in Vietnamese wats. I have spent time in Burmese wats. The only uh, group that I had not spent any time with when I was a monk were the uh, Tibetan. But guess what? The Tibetan wat that was uh, that's in Asheville, North Carolina, which was close by where we were is run by a Westerner, not a Tibetan. If it had been done by a Tibetan who really understood Sangha, then he would be reaching out to all of the Sangha, but they don't. It's a Westerner, and so the Westerner says, oh, we're Vajrayana. they're Mahayana, or they're not Mahayana, they're Theravada, and so we don't have anything to do with them. But the Vietnamese are not like that, because the Vietnamese, in fact, uh, when Vietnam... War was over and the government took over, they actually put an edict because southern Vietnam was Mahayana, excuse me, Theravada, and northern Vietnam was Mahayana, and they wanted to bring them together, which was done officially, and now in Vietnam, there's not much distinction between the Mahayana and the Theravada. There never really was anyway, except in the mentality of the people. But the monks, they get along together just fine. I've got some stories about that, but we'll leave those aside right now. And to point out to that there, there is really no reason for this diverse dichotomy within the Western group, that the monks themselves within these various traditions already are within Sangha, within their own community. So it's very easy for them to go into Sangha with the other communities. And that was one of the reasons or uh, part of the reason why I was able to travel around in the United States and meet so many different Watts was because that's the, that's the tradition is to go on, go on rounds that in fact, there's only three months a year where the monks are, uh, let us call it for lack of better words, cloistered. The rainy times is in the uh, traditionally was difficult times for travel. So it makes sense in Western culture, the difficult time to travel is winter time. Let's change the time of the Ponza from the monsoon season from October through December into, let's have it now, uh, from December to March, because that's the time that makes it difficult to travel because of the weather. All the rest of the year, the monks are out traveling. Where are they traveling to? Other other communities, learning other um, groups, et cetera, like that. This whole mentality of collection and uh, communion and community needs to be given to those in the West and that the best people to do that are those who are already now gung-ho to teach the Dhamma, Thinking that their only option is is to build a Dhamma center. No, there's a new option that we can actually promote here, and that's to get these guys <coughs> connected with some local wat or some local temple, let them move in. They don't have to actually ordain that many people who live in the Watts are not ordained. But they do live in the sangha with the monks. And so going a Westerner moving into a wat can then have that uh, communion with the other monks, that everyone is there, more or less, everyone is practicing the Dhamma, and so that communicates that Dhamma feeling to them. That that's one of the points about Eric. Eric is getting a lot of accolades from our group because they can see what a beautiful, shining example of Sangha that Eric has because he spent quite a number of months within the temple in Seattle. That in fact, that's, we could call it the proof of concept in the West. That uh, if we're going to start something, we need to have an example. Well, Eric is the example. Robert and I have been working with uh, with other monks in the United States to help promote so that the, uh, the the temple abbots are quite willing to have these Westerners come move in if we give them the right introduction and whatnot like that. So these guys who are wanting to become Dhamma teachers, we've got a built-in system for them. Come move into the Watt. Come live with the monks. Within a short period of time, someone will get the idea, well, why don't we open and have a weekly uh, meditation class here at the Watt? The monks don't want to do it because they don't speak English well enough, but a new Westerner who comes in and begins to get Sangha and gets the Dhamma well, he then can start with the support of the monks, do a weekly meditation hour sitting. That can grow eventually into a weekend retreat. And that's exactly what the Watts would love to do. The Watts in the United States would very much love to have the Western community join in but there is a cultural barrier. There's a language barrier. There's all kinds of barriers there that we can break them down because we know how. That Robert and I, and, and now Eric, we know about this possibility if we can get them. So we need an organization that can promote and support young men or anyone, women if they. we've got possibilities for them too, and they don't have to be young. But generally, if a man is married and has children and he wants to do this, the best thing to do is to wait a while and do his duties to his family and turn his own family into that Sangha so that when the kids are old enough, they would be very happy for their dad to go off to the wat. But if the kids are young and dad says, well, I'm going to go live in the Wat, and maybe be a Buddhist monk or whatever without ch- setting it up properly for the family, he's going to cause trouble within his own family when he is, in fact, trying to resolve problems within his family.
3: I told my dad that he should, uh, take a, he should, he should go live in Thailand, so you might, you might have a visitor coming
1: soon. Ah, well, if your dad wants to come to Thailand, we've got room on the porch here. (laughs) Uh, Then, in fact, we've had people come through here on a regular basis, not since COVID, but even (laughs) recently, uh, uh, we've had uh, house guests. So there's no problem for that. That's Sangha. Uh, So. If we have these guys, then this organization can have some donations coming in from various people who would like to support Sangha, who would like to support the growth of Buddhism. That Buddhism right now has more people who want it. You can say it, in fact, that it's a buyer's market right now because there are more people who want the Dhamma and want the Sangha than there are places for them to find it because all they can find is books and Reddit and the internet. And uh, normally the people they find there don't know how to do Sangha anyway. And so uh, getting guys into the Watts, getting them some support so that they feel comfortable and happy. Some guys can would need a car for some reason or another. But mostly everything is going to be uh, the essentials, like housing and food. Clothing is not much of an issue. But we can donate for for people uh, like that so that they can go live in the community. So that's one example of it there. Uh, Bringing the teachers who are already teaching together into Sangha bringing new people who want to become teachers getting them into sangha and then that's left with everyone else who is now a potential dhamma dude there now has a way for them to communicate and be around other people the uh wouldn't it be nice if there was a westerner in every one of these 300 and something watts in the united states so that when Westerners would come, they would have someone who knew the ropes, who spoke their language so that they can join in. This is how we can do things, so that people now can, uh, can be friendly with the Watt, hang out at the Watt, do things at the Watt, by numbers and numbers. And in fact, when I was at Watt Greensboro, simply because I was there, it became a magnet and the whole Greensboro area, people would come. In fact, I've even gotten students who have called on Skype now and says, I remember you when you were a monk in Greensboro. And, and, and that's a really good, because that was 15 years ago. And that's really great to have that kind of connection and, and community um, around. And by the way, Greensboro North Carolina kept that Because we left, even when I left to go live within the uh, Lao community, he had already ordained. And um, unfortunately, in 2017, he died of prostate cancer. But he was there in Greensboro from 2005 until 2017, promoting Sangha in North Carolina for the Westerners. And I think that that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to do all over the place so that people who do want to have community with the sangha will find people who are already involved with the actual asian sangha that exist and so these are some of the things that we can do with an organization but in order to do that we have to be able to take donations we have to be able to put out a newsletter we have to be able to get in order to take the donations, you have to get a bank account. In order to have a bank account, you have to have in the U.S. an EIN or some sort of formal way to do that. We need incorporation papers or 5013C, and um, we had already gotten started with all of that kind of stuff, but the paperwork broke down, and then the community, the Sangha, broke down. And so uh, we need to get that started again, and that we've gotten several people. And in fact, Sandra said that she will help Willie with the website, and that Robert is going to be doing the incorporation papers, and we already have quite an email list built up uh, from Catlin doing that. And so we need to get the email stuff going, get the website back up, running, With the donation button and all of that kind of stuff so that we can now, the important thing is start getting the word out so that we can start putting stuff out on Reddit saying, hey, if you really are interested in the Dhamma, then come and get the Sangha. Happy New Year guys We were just talking about you Robert That's amazing you show up That's another serendipity Isn't that amazing I mentioned Robert within 30 seconds He's online (laughs) We're
5: happy to be on here Happy New Year everyone Great to see you guys
1: Robert turn your camera sideways So that you can get into um... Yes sir Absolutely Okay like this Yes, that's it. You got it. Sandra, okay. say hi. Hello, Sandra.
0: Hi. How are you guys? Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you. Every day. I, a... I would
0: love to talk to you tomorrow. Are you available?
1: <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to talk with you. I've got uh, some questions to ask for you. Robert has already volunteered <laughs> your services. <laughs> so okay, this, and that so we can begin helpful. to talk about that, that we already have a, um, a, a website up, but that for some reason the password was confiscated and now uh, has been changed, but we do have a backup copy and we need to bring up the website again and make a few changes to it so that we can get it going again. Uh, and so um, that would be one thing that we can do, but there is a bit of work for everyone. Then, in fact, um, the the problem with the Western mentality is is that the people who are involved are the ones who are responsible, in the sense of ownership and control, to right. where we're, we're looking much more of a sin, issue of the Sango, and that includes the fact that we all are involved with it and no one owns it. That, that that idea of not owning something is an extraordinarily valuable thing. Um, I practiced that, by the way, when I was a monk, my mom needed help. She was getting old in her business and that the rest home then, I could look at it as this is not my rest home, it belongs to my mother. And my mother could retire and say, this is not my rest home. It belongs to my son. And so neither one of us had to have that clinging to that rest home. And we could enjoy what was happening with that. That was a way of looking at it. And and I like that um, with the idea that I really don't want to own a house. Tam wants to own a house, but I like this house because I don't own it. And because I don't own it, it does not own me, <laughs> that I'm just a guest here. And that also was the idea of originally with the sangha um, was to that it wasn't mine, that I could give it to these other guys. But the problem was, is that when I did give it to the other guys, I didn't give it with this concept that this does not belong to me. And so they said, oh, now that uh, that D'Amorato has given this thing to me, it belongs to me. I'm on the board. I will do what I want to do. And uh, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen, Robert. So when we do get a board, we need to have a board that has enough people on it to where no one feels, number one, that they own it. Number two, that they are uh, especially responsible because their name are on the papers. That means that they're legally responsible for things because that's what happened with the first board is that they thought that because they were members of the board that they're legally responsible for something. In fact, there's nothing legal to be responsible for because the, the incorporation papers are going to be you know, non-profit, no problems with that. So the whole point is, is that nobody owns it. And if we have a big enough board, say nine, 11, 13, maybe, you know, some big corporations will have 35 or 40 people on a board. We could have a board that's like that. So that we had 35 or 40 people who had little jobs to do. One could be putting out a, a newsletter once a month or once every three months one other person could be one who maintains the mailing list another one would be someone who organizes the teachers another one so we've got all of these various little jobs that we can do for volunteers to to become part of it without anyone feeling burdened like they own this thing that they've got to carry it around remember i was uh, mentioning it about a backpack People don't even know that they're carrying a backpack and they're just carrying their burden, but their friends can say, hey, you've got the backpack you're carrying around. Why don't you take it off and enjoy your life a moment? Okay, well, somebody picked up the old sangha as if they owned it. They turned a symphony into a trio. And we want to make sure that that doesn't happen the next time by having enough people who were uh, on the board. So I would highly um recommend that we begin to talk this up about let's get a board going so that we've got a whole group of people that can get their names onto the documents that Robert is going to get for us. And then there's the old other possibility, and that other possibility is, is that we really don't need any of those papers that an individual, in fact, can uh, set up a PayPal so that we can receive donations. And all we need to do is to have that guy that we can trust that he's going to deal with the money, but we can do that because PayPal is actually keeping track of all of the, of the stuff they've got to do that. And so we could have open books. We don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff if we plan correctly so that we have an organization that no one feels responsible for no one feels burdened by, no one feels like we can't do that because I don't want to do it. Instead, we can't do that means that all we need is just another volunteer who will volunteer to go do that, and then we can get that done too. So the promotion of the Sangha has then to produce uh, the thing in several ways. There's actually now a fourth group. The first group was the teachers that already exist who are not in Sangha, the meditation teachers who are there. Let's see if we can bring them with someone coordinating so that we can have a Zoom call together, meet a meet and greet, uh, a discussion group so that they can begin to feel comfortable with each other as a community of Dhamma teachers, as opposed to competing Dhamma teachers. The second one, is the group of people who want to be Dhamma teachers but don't know how to do that without going to the same uh, rigmarole that the current group of Dhamma teachers have had to go through and to give them a Sangha by moving them into the various lots and teaching them that way. Hang on, Robert. The third one is the people who... Uh, are kind of new to the to the Buddha-Dhamma and want to join Sangha, there is now going to be a Sangha or a community for them. The last group that I will mention, the fourth group, is the group of elders. Those monks and other uh, elder individuals, let us say uh, using the borderline of the age of 70— And all of those guys who were over 70 who have been ordained as monks for many years and have uh, um, become established in the Dhamma and in the Sangha to get them also in a community by bringing them in as advisors or elders into the organization so that we can have all of the really old elders, all of the... um, current practicing Dhamma teachers that are, let us say, under 70. Then we have those students who want to be Dhamma teachers. And then we have all of the other people who need Sangha and would be willing to join it as an ordinary member. So these are the four groups of people who would be there and that we need someone to coordinate and work with each each of these various groups. So uh, this is the way that we're looking for it. Where there's a lot of work to be done, but we've got a lot of people to do it and we can do it all happily together. <coughs> Robert, you had a question.
5: Um, yeah, sure, I kind of forgot. Let Let me think about it. Um. um oh yeah, I was wondering, did you see the video that uh, Nicky, Sean and Eric did today?
1: I saw that it was there, but I haven't uh, seen it yet.
5: Okay, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll.
3: Why don't we ask? Why don't you ask Don Rado that question uh, about Sodopon? Pond? I think we had talked a little bit about yeah. that in the beginning, yeah. but to
5: reiterate that. A, yeah, we had a wonderful conversation. One of our subjects was the cla- the cal- classification of Sotopon. So, you know, um, you know, one of the three characteristics is impermanence, right? But so the Sotopond mm-hmm. Pond described as being one that they only have seven lifetimes left to go you know they figured it out they've got the dharma figured out they're gonna become you know reaching our hot at some point
1: you know what uh, is a lifetime
5: well this moment
1: <laughs> okay all right all right or, that...
5: a month, or a year whatever
1: no Uh, We don't have to think of seven lives or seven lifetimes in the sense of seven different bodies that born, grow up, age, get sick, and die, seven of those kind of lifetimes. But we can think of seven lifetimes as a mental is born, grows into maturity, get sick and die. So that's the lifetime that we have to look at, that this is actually what we mean in the Buddhist uh, terminology of reborn, is, is that we are reborn every time new input comes in, every time some new conception happens, every time we conceive something, that's a new birth in the mind. And that we are, in fact, reborn over and over and over again. So an example of that seven lifetimes for the soda pond would be an ordinary person can get into an argument with someone and that argument goes, argue, 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 back and forth and back and forth. And it can just last and last and last and last and last. Okay. But for the soda pond, The idea is is that he's keeping kind of an eye on the and when things get too far. He knows that they've gotten too far. So he can actually say, start an argument and have seven statements in that argument. And after seven statements in in that argument, he says, this argument is dukkha now, and I don't need to do it anymore. But it took him seven arguments to figure out that this was Duca. And yep. so he was reborn seven times, and it took him probably ten minutes for going through those seven lifetimes,
5: or, or he just stops talking.
1: That's the whole point. When he stops, that's the whole point. That's what uh, Angulimala said to the Buddha: "Stop, monk." And the Buddha says, "I have stopped. You stopped too."
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop.
4: Yeah, I definitely think that there's something to that. Like people have a center of identity, you know, and like when we're young, we think we're the body or the mind or things like that. That would be considered like a kind of a certain kind of identity. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe we do some training and we realize that that was just a thought or a sensation and our center of identity transforms and kind of forms like a new rebirth, you know, to the point that our thoughts change. Maybe we change careers where um, Mm -hmm. I could kind of see that too, you know, like there's definitely distinct, shifts in our understanding of identity, you know, and that pretty much constitutes a different kind of uh, life, you know, a different way to live, different place to live from.
1: Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yes, exactly. So the way that we look at it then is, is that the Sotapan is the one who is eager enough to want to apply the Dhamma to what's happening right now, including this argument that I'm having with Ms. X. So that's why that seven lifetime thing is there is because we're going to repeat things maybe seven times. Another example would be that the soda pond is only going to visit the brothel seven times. And after he does, he's finished with that. He's got enough of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, that's what we're talking about in the sense of those lifetimes. They're doing that kind of stuff, and the soda pond then is the one who is eager enough about the Dhamma to really take a look at what he's doing, and after he does it enough, he recognizes, oh, this is not worth doing anymore. I should stop this. I don't have to be reborn as a brothel dude. I can stay a Dhamma dude instead. <laughs> so it's a kind of like um, It's a kind of thickness.
4: Like maybe they take seven tries, someone who has a one-time rebirth, maybe they learn with one mistake, and then maybe the ultimate stage is you're in such a place of wisdom, you could sense the lesson before it even takes place, like in real time, you know?
1: Yes, in fact, that's what the Sotapan, Sotagami, Anagami, and Arahant really are all about, is that the Sotapan is going to get his hand out after he's lost seven fingers. (laughs) (laughs) but the um, uh, Sotogami is the one who is uh, reborn one time in other words the Sotogami is the one who um, let us say that his foot is stepped on he is shoved uh, something uh, is a big surprise and he'll have one outburst like Ah! and then he wakes wakes up and he says, I only need to do that once, and then I can stop. And no. that could be, you know, with, with anger. Uh, an example was that was, let us see when it was, 2011, I think it was, or maybe it was 2013. In any case, Bangkok is a major, major obstacle between Udon Thani and uh, uh, Surat Thani. And um, uh I was asking Cam to help uh, direct, and I said, should we take the left or go straight? And she pointed kind of straight in the sense of to go left, and so I went straight. And when I recognized immediately that what I had done is misinterpret her, her hand signals, but I didn't immediately recognize that. The first thing I recognized is she had given me the wrong signal. And I said something about it. I said, what? And then I woke up. (laughs) 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 To recognize that it wasn't her hand signal that was wrong. It was that I interpreted it wrong. But it only took me one moment to wake up to that. Hmm. Yes, go ahead, Robert.
5: So one thing Keyshawn and I were discussing was whether or not one would, um, once they're on that path, whether or not they truly would never leave that path, right? And from our own personal experiences, once you learn this stuff, it's so logical, that there's no reason ever to leave it beyond like a short amount of time, right? Like a day or something like, you know what I mean? Ah, Like,
1: yeah, that is true. And is absolutely true when you're still in Sangha, you don't even have to pay attention to the Dhamma anymore because everybody that you're around is noble and you just continue along with the noble. The problem is, is that if you leave your noble community, And go out into the world again and are not practicing with any practice of meditation and you're not associating around Dhamma dudes or anything like that, then it is very easy to start back into culture again. That you have now, I mean, what are you going to do when you're living in a brothel? <laughs> and the whole and and we can think of it in a conceptualized way yeah the world is full of bravels <laughs> and if you're not in sangha then you're in a bravel and so it does um uh diminish and wear off over time but luckily generally some thought would happen the example of that was is that um Even though I had been back in Thailand when I disrobed in 2008, I came back to Thailand in 2009, and by 2010, I had finished up with the United States completely so that I could stay in Thailand. Then it was in 2011 that I went back to visit Achan Po. That was when I got back into the Dhamma. So from 2008 to 2011, I was... (laughs) <laughs> really yeah I was in the brothel <laughs> <laughs> oh you God. gotta live like the brothel when you're in the brothel and I had joined the world in fact I intentionally went to Udantani because they've got brothels
5: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never would have thought so, yeah like so, so you lost track of your dhamma practice for a few years
1: yes well, I do. I wouldn't say lost practice of it. Let's just say that I wasn't cleaning off all the dirt that was being slung.
5: Right. Well, could you expand on that? That's very interesting. Because, you know, from my perspective, like, you would never want to give this up once you start practicing it,
1: you know? Ah, but then that Kawasaki came by.
5: Ah, uh, the motorcycle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, a real hill climber. You know, something to to toy with, something to really scoot about. Okay, so that's part of the problem that I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't have that motorbike anymore. We got that sold. (laughs) Didn't need it. (laughs) Yeah, in Thailand, there's two kinds of bikes there is transportation, which is normally a scooter or a step through or something like that. And uh, even some of them are quite expensive. But then there's the other world, and in Thailand, they use the word chopper. In the English or in the U.S., we would use the word hog. In other words, a hog or a chopper is not for transportation. It's for exhilaration. And so I gave up the bike that was bought for exhilaration so that we have now only bikes that have for transportation. A 90cc will do. You don't need a 500 CC or a thousand CC. So that would be that's the example of it. That when we but if we come back to Sangha, we can pick it up really quickly. Or let us say that it doesn't once you're in the habit of taking a bath, even though you don't take one for three years, that first (laughs) bath you take is really cleansing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) yeah did
5: you have a feeling like you know you had obeyed so many rules as a monk that you felt like you know what I'm just not going to obey any of these for three years was it kind of like a rebel mentality a little bit
1: no because I had been a monk already enough years that I could see that the rules of the monks were not rules like you give a child because in fact a child When you give the child the rules, they don't like the rules. They'll go along to get along. But let us say, hopefully the child will realize that there's a reason why that rule was set. And once the child sees the reason for the rules, he's much more happily being able to follow the rule happily rather than resenting it because he didn't understand the rationale of the reason for the rules. Right. And so that has a lot to do with it. The wisdom of knowing why this rule is there, that this rule, in fact, is my friend. This rule is actually a guidance to help me to stay out of trouble. Right. That—that that, You could say the rule, then, is is that you don't criticize other monks. If you want to criticize other monks, then it's a rule that you either keep or break. But when right. you see the wisdom of the rule, it's no longer a rule. Now it becomes part of your lifestyle.
5: Right.
4: Something so, that I've. Um, oh, go yeah. Ahead. Something Corey, go we ahead. talked about earlier about karma. Um, I really did like a lot of thinking about that lately. And um, something that I've noticed kind of like one of the main pressure points or the main. um places that karma really strikes is our identity and so like um, in the example of like where you slap someone else you know and people are afraid that um, they're going to get slapped back right Take for tat the way that I've come to understand karma is that when you hit someone you identify as the aggressor and ultimately that karma is going to come back to you in that form of identity like you're going to it's going to cause some kind of an issue because you now identify as that, you know? And um, I don't know, you know, like I've noticed a lot of the wisdom really comes back to that identity as well. Like, you know, that the self identity seems to be the real root of our issues. And so wisdom really should help us to try and understand that, you know? And um, I don't know, you know, like that's how I've come to really embrace wisdom is because I found out the practices really help us Or if we don't use the practices, if we don't kind of follow the rules, ultimately the damage is going to be done in our sense of self, in our identity, and ultimately that's where we're going to pay the price later on, you know? And I figured Mm -hmm. that out by breaking the rules and kind of watching and uh, kind of seeing how things go, you know? Um, But yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't really think about that. The main understanding of karma is a tit for tat, even amongst people who claim to be highly Uh, like knowledgeable or teachers, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just the common knowledge right now.
1: Well, the easy way to describe it to uh, new students is to give examples of tit for tat. And that's why people uh, get stuck in that concept of comma is about tit for tat. But when we look at it tit for tat, if you would think of it, what kind of computer could be in the sky that could keep track of every human being's every movement and make a AI judgment call as to whether that motion or movement or action was wholesome or unwholesome or bad or good? And then do all the tallying and put weight ratios on it, make it into a computer program kind of thing, and you'll recognize that wait a minute, that kind of comma couldn't possibly exist. That kind of comma machine couldn't possibly exist. There are no cameras in the sky. There is no one keeping track of every little thing like yeah. that so that they could create a tit for tat system that is generally. Pardon? Yeah.
5: They're trying to do that in China. The social credit system is exactly that. Except instead of wholesome, unwholesome, it's is it good for the CCP?
1: Uh, The best they'll be able to do is put cameras out on the street. And the phones. They monitor
5: the phones, too. And the transactions and all of these things. I know
1: what to do with a phone. Put it down. (laughs) Stop. (laughs)
5: Yeah. I mean, I heard a story... About a woman, Chinese woman. She was wa- she was walking a long distance in L.A., and someone pulled over and asked her why. And she said, "To improve her social credit score, because it was tracking her fitness on her on her watch, her Fitbit.
1: tracking I'm not, her." I'm not following you. Can you, you? Somebody pulled her over. What?
5: Yeah. So someone asked her. Her boss in L.A. saw her walking along the road, and he asked her, "Why are you walking on the road? I can give you a ride." And she said, "I'm I'm walking because it'll improve my Fitbit score, and the government tracks my Fitbit, so it improves my social credit score." And she's in L.A., not in China, but she's a Chinese citizen. So uh, the social oh. credit was improved by the Fitbit. You know, so that's how intrusive it is. You know.
1: Oh, okay. Um. Yeah.
5: They're getting very, interesting.
1: I I imagine that her mind is more there than the Chinese government.
4: That's the thing that I agree too. you know, like there's not some external sky God tracking all of our movements. It's built into our mind and our identity. We're the only ones who ever really are able to track everything. We're the ones who it's by default that the brain makes those comparisons and really. Does that with our identity and that's why our training is to kind of break free from that way that the mind creates an identity from past and future in comparison you know uh because Mm -hmm. it ultimately just causes a lot of issues and pain you know so yeah
5: yeah i mean i'm kind of afraid that with you know that well you're not afraid but i'm interested i'll say (laughs) i'm interested that you know, with the social media and smartphones and all this data that's being aggregated, they're kind of trying to create a god. You know, where everything we do is measured and quantified and rewarded or punished. You know, it's a little uh, interesting. You know, well,
1: why why should the Chinese government want a god when they've got Zing? <laughs> well, that's the point. Yeah, <laughs> he's supposed to be the god, right? <laughs> well. That's because we have the delusion that if we can control everything, then we can be safe. Right. Not recognizing that it's unsafe to try to control things. Right.
5: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
1: it creates more problems.
5: You know, he Mm -hmm. would be a lot safer if he were a fisherman in some village somewhere.
1: Right, that's the whole uh, teaching of Chang Tzu. When yep. they wanted him to come work for the Chinese government, he gave them the story about the uh, the white sacred uh, turtle. Who, um, It was just a white turtle the child found, and he took it to town. The, uh, the important people in town thought that it was a marvelous turtle. It was just an albino turtle, but the people in the village, they didn't know that, so they built a shrine for the turtle. And the turtle was kept in the shrine and everybody came to visit the turtle. And the next thing, you know, after a few years, the turtle, basically, I think what happened is somebody left a piece of a log or wood or something in there. And the turtle was finally able to climb out of his um, captive place. And he was, and he left. And on the way out, uh, uh, a rabbit says, hey man, you're the white sacred turtle, why are you leaving? And he says that I would rather drag my tail through the mud in freedom, than be cloistered uh, and uh, kept prisoner because I'm important. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's the whole thing about, yeah, we don't want to have government intervention, But the reason for that is because we think that they will be unhappy and angry at us when we do something wrong. But if everything you do is absolutely correct and right because you accept what you're doing, then you're not afraid of what the government is going to see you do. I don't have to build up social points for the government because I don't care. (laughs) The problem yeah. was not that that woman was trying, or that the, the government is using cell phones to keep track of how much jogging people do. Let them do that. I don't care. But that woman cared because she wanted something. Right. But if we don't want anything, then let the governments do whatever the governments do. Yeah. not touch me. That seems really oppressive to go to that
4: level, you know. But I don't know, you know. They're, that's a, just a weird country with the way they do things and it's just they're marching to their own drum for sure
1: um well let's get off of china for the moment and get back to the idea of Songa. in fact we've been running kind of long now a couple of hours uh queshawn has even lost interest
4: <laughs> i was thinking that i could do something you know i like to talk to people i like to uh You know, I really am a good like social connector, you know. So if you guys have some kind of, you know, social connecting, something to do with talking, I could really do that.
1: This is where let's end it with this, that we're we now have a new item uh, on the left hand side of the screen for the discord group called the Sangha. This is the site, uh, the location where we're going to do organization, volunteer uh, offers and volunteer requests, et cetera, like that. It's on the Discord. Do you know? Do you know the Discord? Keyshawn or uh, Eric or uh, Robert, can you send uh, Corey the uh, Discord uh, connection, sure. uh, the link? Yeah. Okay, so that's where we're going to do it. We also have the Sangha on the um, uh, Skype. So we can use both of those boards. We're using the Skype more for just beautiful Dhamma. And we'll use yeah. the Discord for organization.
5: Great. Right. I have a question about Sangha. So, so Kishan and I discussed the idea of the micro sangha. You know, like, Yishan and Eric are a little micro-Sanga. You know, Sandra and I are a little micro-Sanga over here. What are your thoughts on these little micro-Sanga
1: you know, songa, uh, movements? That, so, micro, macro, doesn't matter. Sangha is Sangha.
3: Watch this yeah. video back, Robert. We talked about it a little bit. You talked yeah, about yeah. starting Sangha in your own family. That's one, op- one option, too. You mentioned that. Right.
1: Yes, yes, you came a doc, little bit late. We were talking it, about that too. Right. Was Sangha within one's family? Because yeah, the, most families are not Sangha. Most families are, um, <laughs> let us say, battlegrounds. <laughs>
5: right. <laughs> yeah, this pup right here is a real Sangha member.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the one under the chair here is too.
5: <laughs> oh,
1: that's great.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was your What was
3: your questioning, Robert? Was it like, uh, can two people be a tango, or what was the question?
5: It was It was about kind of. So we discussed how, oftentimes in larger spiritual communities, things go wrong, right? Like you look at like the Osho Rajneesh situation in Oregon, right? And that went very wrong. And oftentimes that happens with communes and spiritual communities. We discussed how like a like a Buddhist or a Sangha, like a, a Wat or a church, they tend to do better than the communes because they have the established tradition to fall back on. But on the other hand, the micro Sangha seems more sustainable than the commune because it's just a couple of people hanging out, you know, and the commune tends to, the more people you have, the more chances for combustion. That was kind of one of our, Uh, conversation topics we're curious to hear your thoughts on that
1: okay the thought is is that the ones who combust are the ones who come to sangha and don't join it Mm. yeah that people will in fact join a commune for other reasons like getting away from all of the problems of their own life And so they join a commune not to understand that they brought all of their own problems with them when they join that commune. And the commune is just a collection of people using the word commune, but there's no really communing there. Sangha is real communion as opposed to, um, let us say, outwardly organizational kinds of things where people will go and join a commune. I mean, I've, I've, I've been around. We had real communes back in the 1970s. There's not so much communes much anymore. Uh, and the reason, again, is, is that the commune was started by and people joined without really understanding how important it is that they get along together. That a lot right. of people think that the commune always oh, is, is that we're going to um, have a garden. And so the garden becomes really important. And so people are going into the garden, a really important thing, and they're working in the garden, but they're fighting with each other. They don't recognize that the real garden is each other. And that the yeah. food garden is, you know, just an activity.
4: I think I noticed that too. A lot of the New Age spirituality or especially, like, newer communities when they don't really know what, like, the goal is, you know, what they're aiming for, and they kind of, everyone brings their own goal, and then there gets in, like, competition, you know, and I think that um, one of the benefits of Songda, one of the goals is, is you're trying to create an atmosphere where practice is easier and where you could actually absorb the energy and the mind state without actually having to do practice, like you mentioned, you know, and um, I've been in a couple communities and I've kind of gotten mad at people because the leadership and the people, they just don't really understand that. There's not really that deep understanding of the goal, you know, and if you try to assert your opinion or your statement, people kind of uh, react really badly to that. They're like, oh, that's ego, you know. Oh, you're pushing your agenda. We need to have more of a group thing. But the group thing really ends up in conflict when there's no clear. Communion and no like group orientation or goal, you know, and um, so I think that that's a real benefit of having the longer tradition is they have the goal and they have they know how to do it, you know.
1: Exactly so. So these communes that you're talking about, oftentimes they're kind of new and none of the people in the commune really understand the, the real issue of the community. And so each one of them is coming to the commune to get something that he wants personally out of the commune rather than going there to the commune to recognize that my job here in this community is learning how to get along with people and learning how to get along with myself happily. And when that, when a real sangha, and that's what really th- we mean by sangha, a commune, we can use the word commune and not understand that that's an ordinary thing for ordinary people to do looking for sangha, and what they find is a commune instead. Yeah. But if we're actually promoting sangha, then people will recognize, oh, sangha does not have to do with that. It has to do with sharing friendship both internally and externally, and that we can uh, support one another for this. So that some people have the idea, well, I really can't, because I'm married or I've got a job or I'm important or I've got kids or anything like that, I can't be, I can't drop what I'm doing and take off and go live in the what. But I can contribute... By supporting someone a little bit who is doing that, this is what the reason for the Open Sangha Foundation is all about: is so the the greater good or the greater community uh, can benefit each one of us that we can feel good by generally generosity with generosity, giving to an organization, knowing that we're promoting the Dhamma, and we're promoting sangha, and we're promoting uh, each one of us uh, waking up to the Buddha that is already within each one of us.
5: Right, which is beautiful. <laughs> yeah.
1: And and so this is the idea for a, um, a, a, an open sangha foundation that really is a symphony, and everyone brings their own individual musical oh. instrument. But the symphony is all playing the same song. That's the difference, is is that a commune is when everybody brings their own individual instrument, and then each one of them plays their own tune. And it sounds like a lot of noise rather than a beautiful symphony.
4: (laughs) I think that um, something I really like is... um The idea of a Sangha is kind of also being like a Zen garden. When you go into a Zen garden or a beautiful garden, it puts you in a certain mind state. You know, you're appreciating beauty. You're feeling calm. And um, the real benefit, the real, what I would like to experience if I go to a Sangha or why I would go to a monastery is um, to experience that kind of same serenity. And, but that is developed or a result of multiple people uh kind of like just being in a peaceful mind state you know and um yeah like that's something that i really i really wish i could experience more you know there's not too much of it around here and um you know i it's just like a rarity you know most people don't even realize the value of it you know the value of being in a community where things are like peaceful and mindful you know um it just there's something about environment right we can use all these mind tricks to kind of orient our mind and we could use all these things to help our energy but it's also a lot easier to do that if your environment is already peaceful and if it's uh, you know there's like less heavy lifting to do so i think that's like one of the real benefits of the songa you know lower lessen our workload <laughs> by creating an
1: atmosphere excellent sure. well let's go ahead and finish this off One of the things that I would like to mention is is that Eric here has just been sitting and smiling and nodding and not having much to say. And everybody else is all over the place in the other room, making coffee, playing with the dog, all kinds of things. And I want to congratulate Eric and point out to everyone, look at him. That's an example of Sangha is just by him just sitting still and paying attention and nodding and smiling he <laughs> is the sangha here
4: he's our rock
1: right oh, man it's eric that's
4: why i'm hanging out with this guy <laughs> also agreed. i don't know if you heard
5: that they barked in agreement so we got multiple.
1: <laughs> yes even the dog agrees <laughs> exactly Okay, guys. Well, thank you very much. This has been a long call, but it has been really, really delightful. Thank you so much. This has been so amazing. And I invite everyone to, um, let's get a little bit active, talk this up. We can actually post this uh, video onto the um, uh, the Discord so that people uh, can begin to understand more and more about what we're looking for. We're looking for people who can do a little bit without feeling burdened and that they can contribute knowing that they're contributing to something that's grand and beautiful. that's going to be useful and valuable to a lot of people. Rather than, oh, I've got a Sangha thing here. I own it and I can do with it what I want to. We don't want that kind of mentality. We want the mentality of sharing. And so uh guys let's go for it let's uh get some organization done let's um in fact that was one thing that that would be a volunteer job is someone to just coordinate and volunteer and to do the stuff on uh skype and discord to promote community to promote people who were who are joining because there's already more than 100 people on the discord Let's get them organized and um, let us say enthusiastic and excited, not maybe excited, but at least enthusiastic about um, uh, contributing. So thank you all. I really appreciate it. Have thank a good time. You
5: thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Well, we'll see you guys. Bye. Have a good one. Peace out. Okay, bye-bye.